Coming up on Open Source with Tony Motley, Hu Dang Tho is on the front lines, working to bridge the digital divide by bringing coding and robotics training to underserved youth. The effort is more challenging and more difficult than you may think. I think it's widespread. It starts with internet connection in certain areas where uh, the more you pay, the more bandwidth you get. You know, I, I don't want to get into too much politics about this, but things happen in specific reasons for specific reason. But there is a, it's just a huge digital divide. And, and the only way to resolve that is to get all the stakeholders sit together at a table and figure it out. Welcome to Open Source. My guest today is Q Thang Do, the Executive Director and Chief Impact Officer at Accelerate Kids. Q, thank you for joining me on Open Source. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tell me about yourself and, and how you got involved in this particular project you're working on now. Wow. Okay, let's roll back in time here. So, um, I originally... Uh, landed here from Vietnam in uh, Philadelphia first, and then we traveled to Detroit. Uh, got sponsored by a uh, Catholic charity foundation. So I lived in Detroit for probably 15, 20 years. Um, and during that time, I uh, went to South Lathrop, graduated, went to Eastern Michigan University, uh, majored in marketing. So you and I have something in common there because I know I think you, you're a marketing major too. Absolutely. And and so uh, I was down the street from you. I think you went to U of M too. But anyways, um, I, I felt back then that Michigan really had sort of like a stagnant feel to it. So I packed up my things, asked my mom to borrow her minivan, picked up my sister from Indiana Law School and head west, already California. I stayed in California for 20 plus years, uh, worked in startups, several startups, worked in the technology education sector. Uh, a couple of them were bought out by uh, companies like Princeton Review. So um, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I decided to come back to Detroit, Michigan, because of um, personal reasons, parents taking care of parents, and then I felt like there was a better opportunity for me here to be more effective with my background and help change the environment and climate here. That's so interesting. Here, um, before, before you go mm-hmm. further, I'm just, I'm just curious now, yeah. just listening to your story and your journey, you, you come to the United States, you come to Philadelphia, and then you come to Detroit. And how old were you then when you got here? Probably one. Oh, you were just two. a baby. Okay. I was just a baby, yeah. Do, do you have any yeah. recollection of, of uh, Vietnam at all? No, I, I, I'm assuming blue skies, green grass. <laughs> That's it. Okay. Just just curious. All right. I'm just trying to get a, a, yeah. a f- framework for understanding no. your journey. So when you go to California, this is after graduation from Eastern? Yep. Straight out 97, June, I told my mom, can I just borrow your minivan? I promise I'll return it. And it wasn't returning two years later, but that's a different story. But uh, we, we wanted to discover something new over there in the West Coast because of the Silicon Valley guys, uh, startups, and that kind of um, environment just appealed to me. So did you fit right in right away? What was the uh, experience like when you got there? 
you landed there. What was uh, what were you doing at first? I would say no. I didn't fit in right away. Uh, there was a huge contrast because of the ecosystem that built they built it there. So that um, you know, right now it's trendy over here, but if you compare it to like music, all the trends happen on the coastlines, right? The West Coast music, East Coast music, maybe just other music, but the same thing happened when it came to technology. So um, I remember sitting at these meetup events where it was just like in a basement or in someone's house and we were talking about technology and I didn't fit in because I didn't, this is so new to me. I didn't think that people can create something in just a hole in a wall or someplace just a, a meeting or gathering. And all of these kind of like innovative thoughts and out of the box, out of the box thinking, it just intrigued me. And I kept trying to learn more and wanted to uh, expand my knowledge um, but I didn't fit in. I didn't really know that type of culture existed because it did not exist here in Michigan for sure. And then what was it that you uh, understood or gained or insight that you got that helped you to start to fit in and you felt like, okay, I know what I'm doing here? Well, I can say this. If there was supporting groups and uh, people around you to say, hey, if you don't get it right the first time, try it again kind of mentality. So that was built in. And they had a fallback program in the sense of if you did fail or you did not succeed, there was always ways to get help or get mentorship. Um, so that kind of framework and that kind of like funnel type of system really gave me the encouragement to do things. So I had a couple of startups too myself. Um, they, they failed, but I learned through that process that it's only when you get back up is when you can achieve your, your goal. So I kept pushing forward. And each time I slipped up, I learned and I, I got mentors for um, these, this type of thing where uh, they give you a different perspective on the process. So how to improve yourself. And, you know, sometimes it was harsh, but I think that process itself made me grow into a better person. I think uh, business and personal. I, I agree with you. And I think that one of the things about uh, having a struggle or when you fail at something like you said you did, um, that's really an important part of our process. I just want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, I consider the moments that of reflection that occur from failure as the, bo- the most insightful uh, moments of my life sometimes. Do you feel that way? I definitely agree with you. And I, I don't want to get too zen on this about this kind of topic, but if you think about it, um, all the struggles in this, in this world and society now, and even in my personal life, it just makes you more attentive to that moment and that situation versus things that are like always going nice and fine and dandy. You don't really pay attention to it because you, you expect it. But when things are in your way, you, it becomes a hurdle. You have either that fight or flight mentality. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I, I try to do both just, just because I, I've always wanted to experience growth in my life. So when these hurdles came in front of me and these obstacles, I just found myself facing it. You know, either you face it or you run away. And I, it just made me realize that even in that kind of mental mentality, you can sort of apply it to your business life and your personal life. When you reflect back on uh, 23, 24 years ago, going to California, going out west and you consider 
what you learned there and what you're doing now, how has that impacted what you're doing now? I can tell you that it's systematic where um, things are in place for you to succeed almost over there versus over here. I think that it's almost still like ground zero. People are still building up the startup system here. Even though you have successful supporters like, you know, Quicken Loans and doing the Startup Week, you know, Techstars and those guys. For me, when I came back a couple years ago, I felt like the startup ecosystem here and the connections you make, it's pretty much you, you do it on your own. You have to sort of pick and choose which meetup to go to and then from LinkedIn, you find your sources and you try to line up with the same people in your field. It's over in, in California, mm-hmm. it's already all set up. So if you say you want to go meet somebody in the tech ed space, you have a, a, a plethora of people who you connect to. And if you that person you connect to is not the right person, they'll pass you on to someone else. And you, you have that kind of support system. Versus on this side, Michigan, you sort of don't. Everything is so spread out. And like in San Francisco, where I, I lived for 20-something years, things are in walking distance. Um, things are set up already. So when you meet somebody, they're going to know somebody, and then they'll help you uh, try to accomplish your goals when you know when you pitch out to them what your ideas and, and goals are. Here is a little different. So I think that we're still at the building stage for the startup ecosystem here in Detroit versus in California. I think uh, something you said there is actually pretty interesting that you were in a place where things were in walking distance. And I think in Michigan, because of the reliance on automobiles and how, how spread out things are, that, that, mm-hmm. that distance really, it's, it isolates people and limits people in, in a large way. Don't you think? You're correct. And I, I think that the isolation is built in and, um, seeking out advice, mentorship, and people who think the same or like culturally is harder over this in, in Michigan because you're right, just geographically it's spread out. So when you when you uh, look at what the uh, is built, being built in Michigan, how has that changed since you've been back? I mean, I know it's there's a growing tech sector. You've talked about it. There's some some interesting programs that allow people to get involved in technology that, that are pretty outstanding. But what's your evaluation of what we're doing in Michigan right now, what we're seeing? Well, I can tell you in specifically technology education, tech ed, in which is um, the space I'm in with the Celery Kids. Um, we work with kindergarten to 10th graders where we provide um, four categories of technology education, you know, coding, robotics, digital arts, and game design. And all four of those categories are already in existence over there in California. And I, I think the system why it works better in California versus Detroit, Michigan, or anywhere in Michigan is because it's baked in at the early stage. So when you grow up in that kind of environment, you sort of see it as second nature and you see that support system where you don't have to struggle to find additional education or enrichment programs outside your circle, you know? And in, in Michigan, it's, it's almost like you have to stitch things together independently, you know? Um, so for how it is now, I think the biggest contrast to me is like 
it's, it's not built in the system. So growing up, like I'll tell you this, growing up in Detroit, there's two entities out there that I participate in and so much did links to. It was Dance Up and Junior Achievement. California, you have so many, I guess, I can't even name them. They're like over 10 or 15. And um, I grew up right there where Rutherford High School was. Like I went to Christ King Middle School. And um, I, I had mm-hmm. to go seek out that stuff. I had to go seek out Junior Achievement. My parents had to talk to this person, talk to that person, trying to to enroll. And it was not a smooth transition for me or to try to get more help with my education. I had to go out and get it. So that hurdle in itself, I think, became such a hindrance to other families that, you know, they just gave up. Right. You can't, so I think, everybody can't, is not going to be able to do that. The accessibility of education. And, and I know this is really not necessarily your area, but the thing we hear now is STEM and STEAM and those kind of things. Are we getting it in your view? Are we getting that right? Is though Are those things what kids need to focus on? Or what do you... And I know you teach this, you instruct this, but what do you think uh, in terms of system-wide in the you know public areas, public school systems, whatever, what should they be doing to get people ready starting up as young people? That's a, that's a great question, Tony. And I think that uh, STEAM, STEM, computer science, however you want to you know, call it or claim, um, label it, um, it, it is something I think, I mean, looking back now, if I had the opportunity to go in this kind of um, direction, I would have done that because I, I like computer science a lot. Um, and then the, the way the system is now, the educational system, you, you're built into a box, meaning that if you like something, it's, it's considered elective or after school program. Person, person mm-hmm. that, if there's date into mm-hmm. the school mm-hmm. system, you don't have to go outside of it to seek something they already naturally like. So I think, you know, I, I mean, I have a strong opinion about this, a standardized test thing and all that stuff. It, to me, if you look at how Finland is doing it, they're doing it right. They don't have this kind of standardized testing in which it puts so much pressure on the student in a sense of that emotional um, weight sort of messes with their mind. So you, you sort of use a different side. I forget how you say it scientifically, but you, you use a different part of your brain when you have emotional trauma or you have emotional weight on you. Do you do so you feel students? You do you find students in the United States have that kind of that stress? Uh, yes, I've heard. Yes. I have other friends yes. from say Korea. They have a similar, very stressful situation. By fifteen or sixteen, they're either at that point where they're going to advance. Uh, to a higher level, or they they don't. So they do have that there. Uh, how how is it different here? But Tony, you think about it. The, the system is already supporting that. So uh, the school, I, I can I don't know about Korea, but I I can tell you about Vietnam. So Vietnam is where I'm from. The the government supports the school system in a. Um, transparent kind of way. And that's not implying that America doesn't, but I don't think America does it in the, the way that's beneficial for the end user, which is the student. So culturally speaking, it, it's two different things. Yeah, I, I think um, I see what you're saying, that these, uh, say in Vietnam or even in uh, South Korea, 
young people are growing up with the support and other things that you said you turned baked in. Those things are already there for them so that by the time they're 15 or 16, they've spent their entire life involved, immersed in that. So it's different than it mm-hmm. is here. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think it's it, society itself. It's reinforcing that culture. So it's almost like a, the heartbeat, the through line for education is so important in Asian culture that it starts at the nucleus of the family and then it builds out. So it's very different here. You think about the individual mentality in America versus the community and family orientation of Asia it's hugely different. And that's not we're talking about education. That's just talking about um, emotional support or family support. And that's our, that's our different. social structure in the United States. I mean, and, and families yeah. vary in from, you know, from city to city, from state to state, from region to region. Right. But generally right. speaking, America is the land of the individual. It's not really about community. Exactly or family. right. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so exactly how do you, you know what I'm talking about? How do you help these young people in, in your uh, uh, Accelerate uh, project? How do you get people, what's the approach to get these kids who don't have, not that they're lacking in terms of their skill level or, or their uh, uh, aptitude, but how do you get them up to speed knowing what they are lacking? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. So uh, Accelerate Kid has in his DNA, we have our tagline, which is, Kids, entrepreneurship, and technology. And those three pillars building out Accelerate Kid, we really look at the individual kid, see where they're at, and then we meet them where they're at. We don't try to force them to accelerate, so to speak, until you know they finish a project. We try to figure out what are their problems and how can we talk to them on their level so that they understand it. So we'll give them examples in, in a way that they can relate to. So, um, like, some of our students are very uh, much into sports. So we'll give them an example about sports to talk about STEAM or STEM and then finish the project. And the entrepreneurship part is we want to build the attitude of entrepreneurs, an entrepreneur in a sense of independence, collaboration, creativity, critical thinking, and those 21st century skills people are talking about. And then the technology part is obvious. We just teach them the technical side of it. But to answer your questions as far as how to help the students, you talked about aptitude, and to me, it's more about the attitude in which you approach the content. So I, I had somebody who told me this, I forgot who, who said it, but he had a great way of, of phrasing it when he was like a 20, he, he's been teaching in the BPS school system for 20 years. And he was telling me, uh, Q, it's not about the content that you're teaching, it's more about how you make them feel about the content. And that's a big distinction. And, you know, and that's a great point. And I think it's something that gets lost in the, it, it falls in the cracks and that on the top end where policy is made, um, there's standards and, and those things are important, but we don't really give enough consideration. I don't believe to how this makes you feel. I mean, if we went to a therapist, one of the first questions the therapist going to say is Q you've had X problem. How does that make you feel? But we don't, as educators, we don't really take that approach. We just give you what, you know, here's the meat, here's the potatoes, eat it. And that's it. There's really no discussion about that. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Eat your rockleys. That's funny. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, basically that's totally what we're true. doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I think that there's not a balance where 
you talk about the emotional side. And now that we're in this digital forced environment, this glass screen in front of you, people can't breathe. I mean, they're like, look at it. It's like, I want to go talk to my friends. I want to go outside and play, but they're blocked by this whole healthcare thing. And it's, it's really now the time of people reflecting. I look in the mirror, you, you see how much the analog world you missed and you appreciate that more. And the digital world, this, this whole encapsulation of you being inside, it just, it's emotionally draining. And people don't, we don't really address that now. You know, it's not you may, too late. And then, those are good points. I think um, this is an opportunity, uh, given this COVID situation, to step back and reflect. What are you, what have you personally learned? You're reflecting on it now, but what, what insights have you gained from, what we've been experiencing since February, March, whatever. Since we've been experiencing since February, I feel like just earlier when I said about looking in the mirror, you appreciate things that you lose. And it's like the struggle we were talking about earlier. So now what I'm seeing is that some of the students who we are teaching, they don't want to have their camera on. You know, those kind of things in which they're uncomfortable with because you're literally staring at them um, in these camps and these classes. So what I learned is that when you're in the real world setting, people take for granted that this natural alignment and interaction is more conducive to learning, better for learning versus the digital side. Because you have this, all these people, these kids are, and even teachers, they're very uncomfortable because you're literally staring at these people through the camera. So you, your you're speaking of right now, just so our listeners get it. You're talking about right now, your training is virtual with young people. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so in that experience, there's anxiety is what you're saying, right? Correct. That is okay. the word. It, okay. it is anxiety and, and it's been manifesting in different ways. So we had to address that. And what we do as a kid, and the first thing is like, you know, how are you feeling? Are you comfortable? Is everything okay? And those, those type of questions makes the student feel more comfortable with you. Is that something now that you're going to, as we continue at least virtually for now, are you building that into your, the structure of your approach to, to uh, training these people? Yes, we are. So the whole DNA I was telling you earlier about kids, entrepreneurship, and technology, I think the three pillars and the last one being uh, technology, we have that down. I think right now I'm I'm looking to building out the social emotional learning portion for um, the kids and entrepreneurship part. And we do have a standard where we have the instructors ask these questions before you even start the class because we don't know what's going on. Now the teachers are actually the mm-hmm. parents at home. So we're switching roles here and we, we more than more now than ever need the parents to be involved. And the nucleus of the family is so important in building out the educational pathway for students. What can, or what, what do you feel parents should be doing or parents need to do to help young people in this virtual learning environment? Simply put, walk hand in hand with your child in this educational pathway. And it's going to be revolutionary because right now all the, the mandates and people are in flux with how to start the fall school season. 
um, parents definitely need to be there for the child. And in, in your view, having spent this last six months or so working with kids virtually, what do you think it is that they need? What are we talking about? What kind of things do you think young people need? I think they need the two components, social emotional support and then the technology so they, they can not just use it, but see the balance in between. So like a digital and analog world. And I, for me, it's, it's all about the balance. If, if you're too much on one side, obviously you, you fall over. You're too much on the other side, you fall over. So you stay in the middle and you see the balance and appreciate your family now since you're in this environment and understand technology as a tool way, a, a tool and the, a way to get you to your destination. That whole journey path is very important. So balancing between the digital and analog world to me is the most important thing now. And so in terms of your curriculum, what kind of things are you, I mean, you've talked about uh, entrepreneurship and you talked about tech. I mean, but like specifically on a granular level, what are you uh, teaching these people, these young people? So in our, in our curriculum, we have the practical application of the activity, meaning uh, of the technology. So I'll give you an example of JavaScript. So we'll have them learn the content alongside with the instructor. Then they'll have to apply what they've learned into these activities, like build a game, um, share with their friends, blah, blah, and get some people to test out the game, see if they can find bugs, and have them debug it. Um, so that's the technological part. The other part is we have uh, them talk about things that are happening uh, in their environment at home. If that's stopping them from learning, how can we help? Mm -hmm. so some of the students have one computer and they have to share it. Mm -hmm. So those kind of things. So we, we actually have a, a loaner program, which we help these students if they need a laptop, they sign out and we loan them a laptop. So they have two, two computers at home instead of just sharing one. That's interesting. Now, I think uh, demographically speaking, we assume that the urban kids, the inner city kids have trouble uh, having access to technology, whatever. Uh, what what uh, strata mm -hmm. of uh, young people are you talking about that have the, the one computer? Are we talking about these urban kids? Or are we, who are we talking about? We're talking about um, students who, anywhere in Michigan, where they're close enough to our center, we'll loan out a computer for them. And we also work with the Detroit um, community in which uh, students who don't have access, we, we loan out a computer to them too. So it's just not um, specifically regionally in anywhere in Michigan, it's throughout Michigan. So this is, a, this kind of this divide is all over is what you're saying. Yeah, it's not, it's not just one area specific. It's, right. it's affecting right. everyone. And I think too, what are you, what are you learning about the digital divide and, and what people need? Is it, uh, how widespread is it? I mean, is it, we're talking about a few kids, we're talking about a lot of kids. What do you think? I think it's widespread. I think that, um, you know, it starts with internet connection in certain areas where, you know, the more you pay, the, the uh, more bandwidth you get. And, it, you know, I, I don't want to get into too much politics about this, but Things happen in specific regions for a specific reason. You know, specific region for a specific reason. That's what I meant to say. Um, but there is a, just a huge digital divide. Um, and, and the only way to resolve that is to get, you know, all the stakeholders sit together at a table and figure it out. 
Well, I mean, clearly, uh, most of this is, if not all of it, is driven by profit. And I think, um, you know, if you can't, if there are not enough people living in an area, you're not going to get uh, fiber or broadband, uh, high-speed broadband in that area because it's just not, it's not worth it to the people that build that technology out. Right. Yeah, it, w- it wouldn't be feasible, but I think there's a way to help people in a better way than they're doing it now. As you look uh, to the future, this time will pass. It's hard to see that it will, but it will pass. What are we? What will be our takeaway from what we're experiencing right now in 2020? Again, I would have to say the balance. The balance between how we're doing everything digitally now versus how we're missing the analog interaction. You know, like body expression, you know, facial expression, those kind of things, those subtleties that we didn't appreciate when we had the on-site opportunity to do that. But now when we're being digitized, I feel like it's almost a binary, uh, you know, knee-jerk reaction. You know, have a camera on, blah, 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 and just get the information done. And you're missing all these different nuances when you had the opportunity to be on-site or to meet in person. So I think there's the biggest takeaway for me will be find a balance using technology to help advance your your education or wherever your pathway will be. But at the priority is understanding that there is an emotional tie-in to learning the process along the way. Yeah, and I agree. I think that human beings are, are social animals. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's why I like something that has really nothing to do with what we're talking about, but like solitary confinement is so damaging to people because they're isolated. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, I mean, I'm not going to say that children are isolated the way prisoners are, but I think people in general feel deep anxiety from not being able to interact with their peers. And so that's an important element that we can't, you know, we can say we'll do online learning for safety reasons, but there is a need to interact with other people. It's important. We can't just dismiss that. So for you, what's, what's the next thing for, for accelerate kids and, and for Q what, what's your next move? Mm. Right now, we're trying to uh, scale out the company so that we can reach more kids with computer science and then uh, technology education. Um, we've expanded from eighth grader to 10th graders. So a lot of our kids grow up with accelerate kid. So they'll start at middle school and then they'll go all the way up to high school. Some of the eighth graders wanted to stay on to learn more advanced uh, coding. So we built out a robotics class, for instance, to cater to ninth and tenth graders. And it's um, robotics, Internet of Things. And the title of the class is called uh, IoT Architects, in which they build out an actual product. So you think about Alexa or Google Home, that's what IoT is, Internet of Things, mm-hmm. everything. It's actually going to be a trillion dollar industry. Um, so these kids, very bright kids, they learn about engineering and physically building a device so that they can try to sell it in the market. So we're working with sites like Kickstarter and um, what's the other one, Indiegogo, so that they can post their product to see if they actually garner real support in the in the, in the real world. So it's very exciting. I mean, right now we have probably one or two more spots, but 
this this class in Excel is going to be one of the premier classes for Accelerate Kids. That's awesome, and I really appreciate you uh, sharing this uh, information with uh, our audience and uh, talking about uh, Accelerate Kids. And uh, I think it's a wonderful program, and I hope that it expands and grows uh, the way you want it to. Yeah, I appreciate that, Tony. Thank you. This has been uh, Open Source with Tony Motley. My guest today is Q Thang Do of Accelerate Kids. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Open Source with Tony Motley is a production of Duet Digital Media and McLaughlin Media.